Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chan Podcast. Here is where you learn about meditation and Chan. So, what is Chan? Chan, spelled as C H A N, is the Chinese school of Mahayana Buddhism and is the originating tradition of Japanese Zen. We encourage you to learn and practice meditation with a group. If you like to, feel free to visit our website, LondonChanMeditation.org. How's everyone tonight? Hope you're well. So tonight's talk is Chan and daily practice, daily life. It's a very ordinary topic. Chan, daily life. Uh, could be understood as uh, ordinary. It could be quite profound. As a tradition, Chan emerged as a countercultural movement within Buddhism. Specifically within scholastic Buddhism. So when Buddhism transmitted from India to China, went through different phases. Uh, from first century onward, until the emergence of Chan, seventh uh, century, eighth century, as a self-conscious movement. Of course, there are precedents for that. But prior to Chan, the emergence of Chan as a, as a tradition, what was happening in China was receiving this foreign tradition, religion. The missionaries coming to China, engaging in translation. And the translation process is a kind of dialectical process of mistakes and new offshoots through the lens of Taoism. So you see the early translations of different Buddhist scriptures. Of course, these scriptures went through multiple translations, some of them. Precisely because the early translations, the Chinese on the receiving end was trying to fathom this foreign religious tradition, practice, a completely, completely different orientation to one's self and our place in the world and uh, the nature of the, the self and the world. Uh, very different from China. So trying to fathom through the categories, the words and language that uh, the Chinese had at hand, you know, translating the Buddha as the great immortal, right? translating terms like skandhas, the five aggregates, form, sensation, perception, conception, volition, consciousness, Sometimes translated perceptions, sometimes translated conception. Uh, so these five scandals, translating the scandals as the yin of the yin yang, right? dialectic. Right? So it's just wrong translations. Right? So, but through that mistake, yeah. uh, emerged new, new ways of understanding Buddhism. Of course, this better translation from the fourth century onward, the coming to China of Kumarajiva. So this process of first phase of kind of mistranslations, 
Second phase, once you have better translation, the Buddhists in China really understood what Buddhism was about. Wrote treatises, commentaries, centering on scriptures, the classics, developing different systems of thought around these particular scriptures. This phase is what I called uh, scholastic Buddhism. It's like uh, diagnosing, analyzing, theorizing what Buddhism is really talking about. Of course, Buddhism contains thousands of scriptures. So it's not like the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's one Bible at most you know, commentary. That's thousands of scriptures. So these translations, these uh, had kind of internal conflicts. And being the Chinese tradition, something very unique happened during the second phase of scholasticism. That is doctrinal classification, classifying, harmonizing, integrating different scriptures, placing them in its uh, map of the Buddhist tradition, finding it uh, in its right place, right? What's the elementary level teaching? What's the intermediate? What's the advanced and ultimate based on certain scriptures? So, uh, Chan tradition, and this went on for uh, a few centuries. Right? So Chan emerged as a tradition that sought to move away from scriptures, to bring the Buddha Dharma down from the clouds, embody it in one's own life. Thus, you have the Chan traditions, four axioms. the teaching outside of the scriptures. Of course, these four axioms can only make sense in this context of scholastic Buddhism. So, first axiom, it is a tradition independent from words and language. Outside of the scriptures. Direct pointing to the heart, the mind. I'm using these two, mind, heart, as one. Uh, seeing one's true nature, self-nature, becoming a Buddha. So brought Buddhahood down from the clouds into the lives of practitioners. Instead of this aloof, distant, uh, unreachable goal. Chan uh, brought it down into the daily life of people. So its positionality within the whole of Buddhism at that time, you know, everywhere, you know, everywhere, whether it's India, whether it's other parts of regions, Tibet didn't even have Buddhism yet during that time. You know. Tibet received Buddhism in the 8th, 9th century, right? 7th, 8th, 9th centuries. This is quite, quite early. And uh, South, South Asia, Southeast Asia, very unique phenomena, reinterpreted, repositioned traditional teachings to be something quite concrete, relevant to and practical the lives of people. So, The Chan approach to practice, spiritual practice, the whole orientation, quite different, quite different uh, than uh, other Buddhist traditions at the time. And this unique quality of cutting to the chase, Kind of getting right down to what is at the core of the teaching. 
awakening. And how is it uh, possible to make it make it accessible in uh, people's lives? Uh, so, of course, the word charm is a, a abbreviation of chana. Uh, which is a transliteration, not a translation, transliteration of the sound, the Sanskrit word, dhyana, right, dhyana. So with the Chinese penchant for abbreviation, cutting to the chase, practical, direct access uh, to things, this tendency, of course, it just dropped the second character, na. This Chan. So in the early text, Chan text, or rather meditation text, manuals, jhana or meditation means something very different. So by the 7th, 8th century, uh, uh, the Buddhist witnessed the kind of internal revolution reinterpretation, different regions, you know, different pockets had their, had their own um, uh, interpretation, right? They're connected, but regionally developed, but all centered around this, uh, centered around this, uh, something practical. So Chan morphed from meditation to Wisdom. So the blending of wisdom and meditation into one. What is this wisdom? It's the core teaching of Dharma. And moving away from gradualistic, hierarchical, sequential way of practicing, learning, studying the scripture and the words and language to uh, the direct pointing of the transformation of one's mind, one's vexations. So several, several shifts. Right? Chan no longer need, means meditation. Right? Chan, of course, the precursor. Japan wasn't even on the scene yet. This is 12th century. Right? So uh, this is something happening within China. So the word China moved away from the, the limited, narrow definition of meditation. So it's no longer about meditation, seated meditation specifically. And that's number one. Number two, Chan took on new flavors of meaning to mean Buddhahood, to mean wisdom. That means the union of, uh, you can say meditation and wisdom, samadhi and prajna. And uh, cutting to the chase to move away from the external trappings of this Buddhist religious tradition into the core, the center, in the midst of daily life. So meditation, of course, is very central within the Chan Zen tradition. But this meditation is no longer limited to seated posture. So they're developed uh, through several generations. Uh, a self-conscious movement away from this gradualistic, should be sudden approach. You, know, you can call it bypassing, right? Spiritual bypassing 
approach in a positive way to the core of Buddha Dharma. Uh, hence, you have these four axioms a teaching outside, not dependent on words and language. So it's a wordless teaching, the wordless Dharma, the ineffable. Right? All words are constructs, narratives, whether it's Buddhist or secular. These are human constructs. It doesn't, and with constructs, the nature of words itself is divisive. Right? The nature of words uh, is to separate things, clarify. Right? And uh, uh, with different categories, labels. So uh, teaching outside words and language. Special teaching independent of you know, scriptures, but what the scriptures point to. So the analogy is the scriptures like finger pointing at the moon. Right? It's not really the finger that's important. It's the moon, the moon of our heart, of our mind, the moon of awakening. Direct pointing to the heart of things and realize Buddhahood. Uh, through seeing self-nature. In other words, from the external trappings or lofty teachings, move it down from the clouds into one's heart. Okay. It is about the mind dharma, the mind teaching. Mind here does not mean some kind of cerebral mental process. Uh, it includes uh, the heart. Now we tend to see things in terms of kind of mind versus heart. But um, the Chinese uh, use one word, xin, to be all-inclusive, right? because it's not separate. You can't really separate the things. Different aspects, different dimensions of our being are um, integrated. So, John, how did it practically bring it down from the clouds? It no longer placed great emphasis in seated meditation, instead in daily life. Now, it's not a new invention that this emphasis in daily life, the chaos, commotion, ups and downs, and turmoils in, of daily life to be the arena of spiritual practice. That's not the invention of John. Already in later developed Mahayana scriptures uh, talks about it this way. Samsara as Nirvana. As this, is the, this is the arena in which Bodhisattva practitioners uh, reach Buddhahood. It's not to run away from it. It's to fully engage with, equipped with uh, the Bodhisattva practices. So what Chan did was simply begin to embody it, embody this ideal, abstract it, kind of Mahayana scriptural ideal into lived experiences. Right? So a whole tradition evolved around that. Uh, so this means Every aspect of life becomes opportunities to practice. Now, you must have a foundation. Mind you that if you don't have a foundation, then you will practice relying on that which you have always relied on, which is words and language, you know, taking some old Chan master's teaching as some kind of sacred scripture, and uh, hold on to it, attach to it, as if it's some kind of a ultimate truth. So that defeats the whole purpose. Defeats the whole purpose. So who are the audience? Under what circumstances did this teaching evolve, this tradition evolve? Within the monastic tradition. So these we're talking about 
monks and nuns, already familiar with precept, the scriptures, you know, meditation practice. So they have a foundation. And, uh, and uh, it's on top of this foundation that one can uh, take a step forward beyond. If you don't have the foundation, then seated meditation is necessary. Right? Otherwise, you just rely on your discursive thinking, imagination, ruminations, right? the constructs. So we have a name for that in Chan, a critique of people that talk like that. It's called the words Chan, you know, wording about Chan, or uh, literate Chan. So these are people just mouthing about Chan. They can't really embody it. As soon as uh, vexations come, they don't see it as opportunity. They're sucked into the vortex and they have all kinds of vexations, right? emotional afflictions, so greed, hatred, ignorance. Readily present. So these people just all talk, no practice. So we have that. Also in contemporary time, there's always going to be people like that. It's fine. Sooner or later, they'll come to realize the importance of embodiment of this uh, path. And uh, hopefully seek out teaching. So one of the concrete ways uh, Chan tradition embodied this uh, happened Kind of unintentionally, unintentionally. Historical circumstances such that socio-political upheavals within China with various uh, persecutions, imperial state persecution of Buddhism, because Buddhism was growing like mushrooms, right? So these institutions, monasteries, very powerful, a lot of uh, clout. And uh, with the uh, rise and fall of different emperors. You know? It's always been this ambivalent relationship between state and religion. Some of these emperors, uh, staunch Taoist or Confucians, so they persecute Buddhism. So some of, some of those harshest persecutions in the ninth century. And, uh, You know, some of the doctrinal schools within Buddhism uh, really took a lot of damage, destruction. They depend on words. They have right treatises. They depend on Buddhist statues. They do the rituals around you know, uh, these apparatuses. So uh, never really fully recovered some of these doc doctrinal schools. But Chan, you know, you know, the government persecuted, they want to you know, lay aside, meaning return, having monks forcibly return them back to lay life. So lay aside them, you know, uh, confiscate uh, monastery, uh, statues, wealth, buildings, turn it into schools, turn it into Taoist temples. So a lot of this. So since China is the formless teaching, not dependent on the external trappings. It's fine. You want me to grow my hair? Fine. You chase me out, make me a layperson? Fine. So Chan really survived these persecutions, right? Uh, one of which was in the mid eight, uh, mid ninth century. All the monarchs were destroyed, and people moved to the mountains, and these communities of practitioners you know, lay aside. And some of them. Uh, remained their monastic identity, but they just went in hiding. You know, they didn't have anything to live. The Chan Monastery is the term for Chan Monasteries. Uh, and, and that is forest, as in like trees, forest. Why is that? It dates back to that time. People were just living in the wilderness. So they build, hand build their monasteries. So how did they do that? They took their practice to daily life, carrying water, building shacks so they can practice together. Now, one day without work, 
one day without food. Everyone's got to contribute, including the adult. So this spirit of Chan continued, became part of the, part of the identity. Chan embodied in daily life. And uh, many of these monks during this time soldiered to different teachers, because right? they're all dispersed, spread out different regions, uh, mountains, and so on, because the cities are just really dominated by uh, government, right? So it was seen as a threat. So a lot of the Barnes and Noble, you know, borders, you know, books, store tr translations of Ch old Chan masters, discourse records, and so on, took, a, took, took shape during that time. You see one monk sojourned to different monasteries, asked this monk for teaching, asked that master to teach him some interaction. It's basically in this context. Right? And uh, lineages began to form around different teachers right, in these forest traditions. And, uh, uh, and their practice was communal living. Right? Everyone must take part. Cook is practice, tending the fire is practice, getting the firewood, chopping wood is practice, carrying water. There's no water readily available. You gotta go down to the river and you gotta come back up to the uh, site where people practice. And what do you do? That inconvenient state. You gotta plant your own vegetables and you eat them and you take care of, you know, uh, nutrients for the vegetables. What is that? Uh, human feces. <laughs> you know, so you eat the vegetable and their bodies are, trust me, the bodies are clean. Cleaner than modern people. You know? And they mix with soil and they, depending on nature, they live off the land. You know? So this has always been central. So when we have, even now, when we have the Chan tradition moving out of the monastic wall into late societies, modern time, in Chan retreats, something very unique, right? different than other forms of Buddhism. What is that? Work practice. Everyone, I pay money on retreat to go to, to work and clean the Chan hall, clean the toilet. This is very unique, but that comes from that time. It became part of the identity, the spirit of Chan. Sitting meditation is part of the practice, of course. Nothing really special than other Buddhist traditions. It's just part of the regiment. Study as well. But the heart of the practice for Chan practitioners, monastic or lay, they know this is something that must be integrated into life. What is a practice then? It's called the inner path. Ordinarily, people's minds are swirled around, swirled about by causes and conditions, the ups and downs, social, political, familial, individual conditions. Things are unstable. We can't depend on that for our own sanity. That's a precarious way to live. So the kind of inner stability, anchor, groundings, in the midst of difficulty, our mind is not swirled about by it. That is what defines uh, sitting. So even the Chan reinterpreted Zazen, Zazen, you know, sitting meditation, Zuo Chan. Right? The definition of Zuo or, or, or Za or sitting. Right? Nothing to do with posture. Now you can just take a look at the Platform Sutra, right? the sixth ancestral teacher of the Chan tradition. How do they define sitting? 
unwavered by circumstances. You can be unwavered when you're doing work. That's what people are doing, training themselves. Uh, in difficult times, challenging times, ambivalent situations that they find themselves. Their mind is not stirred up. Not to be a stoic. Fully aware, engaged. Why is that? Because of the principle of meditation. So sitting, unwavered. How do they define meditation? Seeing self-nature. Seeing self-nature. That's meditation. So wisdom. See? Meditation is identified with wisdom. So even the term zazen, sitting meditation, is understood as unwavered, fully engaged. Yet in the midst of it all, wisdom is present. What is that wisdom? Selflessness. Selflessness. Sometimes it's called emptiness. Not an abstract notion, the emptiness. How I define it is uh, relationship in the midst of everything. Right? So guagu is made up of non-guagu. Uh, nothing possessable. No ownership. Yet fully utilize what is present. So I'll, I'll get to how that practically plays out uh, a little later. So, uh, you know, in the midst of the complexity of life, how this translates to our modern time, we must, if you practice Chan, we must learn, of course, to have a good foundation, if you have a good foundation, if you don't have a meditation foundation, like how Chan arose within the monastic walls, they have good foundation right? in meditation. You must have a good foundation, but you must know that Chan is not sitting meditation. Right? It's life itself. And what is life? The ups and downs that you experience. We are bearing witness to upheavals of racial violence, of uh, various movements that highlights the way we discriminate against others, the way we take on privileges for ourselves uh, unawarely. So, process of expose, exposing all these things. It is precisely in the midst of this that we are not sucked into the vortex, yet we fully engage, fully engage. And uh, if you see yourself engaging and you uh, are being criticized or you are you know, giving rise to vexations, uh, feeling emotionally distraught, then you have to come back to the foundation. Come back to that foundation. That means the foundation is not uh, solid. So when you're in good foundation, then you engage again. To whatever level you're able to. Because right? Chan practice is about relationship. Something is more difficult for you that you can't really face it at this time. You bring it into your awareness. Right? You leave it at the corner of your mind. Right? Slowly you can bring it so you can really face it. Really face it. If you cannot, put it in the corner. Don't dismiss it. Don't run away from it. Yeah. Don't be sucked into it. So, life is the path. Relationship is the principle. In the midst of relationship, 
There's no self. It must be present to all. But if we get ourselves, our own narrative into it, it's very difficult to come out of it. So to truly be present, you know, we have to give ourselves so much space that our self is absent. Not so get caught up in it. Our own narratives, personal histories, we can see what needs to be done. For example, um, uh, 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 so what I've been talking about is what practices, right? But this is not, even for Chan practitioners, uh, very difficult, you know, especially for people that, you know, bring to practice their own ideas of what they think practice is. So they see practice as meditation. They see practice as awakening, so they kind of chase after it. They have a fixed idea of what practice is. There is no fixation in relationships as in Chan teachings. Chan teachings emerge in the interaction, in the in-between, dynamics between teacher and student, between two people, between two groups of people. So there's no fixed teachings. It's formless, formless. But a lot of practitioners still attached to form. For example, one of the greatest Chan masters, Da Hui, Da Hui Zhonggao, uh, great advocate of the Huato practice, Koan. Uh, he's the hero of Japanese Rinzai Zen, Hakuen, right? in the 18th century. So he has a student. He, he has a student. Um, his name is uh, Dao Qian. Dao Qian. Right? Been practicing with Da Hui, this great master, for 20 years. 20 years. And uh, all Da Hui did was just tell him to you know, do some, run some errands, you know, go to carry this letter to this layperson's house, you know, do this and do that, do that. So all along, Dao Qian's been thinking, is he withholding some secret teaching to me? Why do other people get, some, you know, get to sit in the meditation hall or do the work? And I'm always get stuck doing errands for him. You know? So he's been waiting for the Chan teachings. As if running errands, doing menial labor is not Chan. So he has this fixed idea. The last time, Dao Hui wrote a letter to uh, Zhang Jiuchen, he's great literary, very influential, wrote a letter to him. Dao Chen, take the letter to him. He had to sojourn through mountains and so on. And uh, he's really frustrated. He's like, about to leave like, again. I don't get to practice. Teacher says, makes me do these things. And then his daughter brother, Zhong Yuan, found out and said, let me, let me just, let me tell you, let me make a deal with you. I'll go with you. Now, Zhong Yuan was awakened. Dao Qian obviously has this fixed idea of what practice is. That became his obstruction. See? Any fixation, any hang ups you have, whatever you can let go of, that's your obstruction. So Dao Qian has got himself into this ball of angst, dis-ease. Now his life is pretty simple as a monk. You know, he just run errands, do his menial labors. So his mind was kind of collected, except this one thing that his heart had to hang up. So Zhong Yuan took a, took a look at him, saw what's happening. Just let me go with you. Let me make you a deal. All you need to do, I'll, I'll take care of everything. 
I'll be your attendant. All you need to do is wear your clothes, eat, uh, pee, poop, and sleep. I'll carry your bag, I'll take your letter, we'll get there and you can hand it over. I'll be your attendant. So, but you have to promise that's all that you do. And take care of this. Take care of this. Um, uh, that which you feel inside. So, they got on the trip. Very briefly, he was able to, his daughter brother was really able to help him, gave him the secret to practice. Right? That is, no obstructions, no hang ups. That's the secret. Not relying on anything, put it down. So, on the beginning of the trip, right? This guy's got 20 years under his belt. Whatever practice he was doing, you know, I'm sure he's reading scripture, he's reading you know, different uh, Chan texts. You know, by that time, 12th century, there was text circulating Chan. Yeah. And for he's just developed this wonderment, the sense of dis-ease. Right? Where is the teaching? Where is the true 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 teaching? Why, why, why am I not giving the true teaching? Develop this and then Zhong Yuan helped him. Not far into the trip. Put clothes on, ate, he peed. When it's time to poop, he pooped. Time to sleep, he slept. Great awakening. Finally, when he, able, when he was able to just do what's present at him, put down everything that he has constructed, including his wonderment. He just put it down. Then the gateless barrier of awakening opened for him. He turned to Zhong Yuan and says, thank you. Brother, no need to travel with me anymore. I'll carry the letter to him. Uh, he realized practice. But people typically have some fixations, notions that they're carrying. Now, if we reflect that to our lives, he's just got, he was a monastic, he's just got one baggage that he needed to put it down. How many baggages do we have? <laughs> a lot, right? We worry about this. We're hung up about that. You know, we're, you know, in our daily life, we're caught up with this. Now, this, the moral of the story is not to put down everything. Literally, I have the leisure to do that. The moral of the story is the principle of this wordless mind dharma teaching. You have to cut through and see what is ahead. You have to see through the veil of all the narratives, all the baggage that we carry, some of which are very deep and have shaped our very identity are very alive, they're very important to us, these different values. Values of race, values that we've experienced discrimination, values of learned, uh, implicit you know, biases that we hold, privileges that we own, projections that we have on others. So some of these are very deeply ingrained. So we need to face them. We need to accept them. We need to see 
the workings of these conditions, how they have shaped our life. And we have to learn to engage but disentangle from them. The more entangled we are, that's all that we're ever going to be, just those values. Do they shape us, bring meaning in our lives? Yes. But they also carry with it whatever truth that they have. They also carry with it the flaws, uh, the vexations. So truth and vexations, right and wrong. This is the entanglement of the world. You can't have one without the other. Within all good, there's also potentially not so good. Within the not so good, there's also the silver lining. How deeply we are defined shapes our decisions. So we must see that clearly. Accept them. Work with them. But have the ability to put them down, to be free from them. To be able to put ourselves out of the situation. That's very difficult. Especially that which you have so much vested interest and history in. Very difficult. Very difficult to put it down. That's where practice is. Whatever you cannot put down. It may be very good. It may be wholesome. It may be who you are, but whatever you cannot put down, that becomes your obstacle. So there's a story of uh, maybe a fable. This great learned uh, monk carries with him his kind of uh, back then is just kind of like this rack that people carry with books in them. Nowadays we've designed school bags, but back then it's just kind of like wooden rack in which they have they can hold a lot of things. They can hold Buddhist statues, they can hold their scriptures, and monks carry sojourn from one place to another. Always carry this with them. Went to a charm master. Greatly attached to it. These are that which he values so much. The John Master says, what do you got there? This the great scriptures, the Buddhist text. Says, Look again. He opened it. There's a snake in it. So the, the point of that story is, you know, whatever we attach to, hold on to, identify. It doesn't matter what it is. Whatever we have vested interest in, we're bound by it. We're tethered to it. We're not free. And the point is not to disengage. That's wrong also. Run away. Let me just disentangle from everything there. That is also wrong. That itself is one of the greatest entanglements. Practice based on some notion, some idea of detachment, of what true practice is. And all that is just knowledge, constructs. Practice is your life. So in this practice, we learn to face, to discover, and to be accepted. There are history. It's a real history that have made our life meaning. Yes, you must work through them. You must pres be present to them. But the point is not to wallow in them, entangle yourself deeper and deeper. You must develop the ability to be free, to be free from them, to be able to put yourself out. 
take yourself out of the situation. This is very easy to, to actually see how vested we are in the things that we do. You know, board meetings, where people share their opinion of things, how you hold on to your own idea, right? your own views of things. Right? And we demand other people to accept. Right? So uh, teachers do this as well. Right? So teachers are also practicing. Now people bring to teachers a lot of expectations. Right? And uh, sometimes they criticize teachers. Right? So teachers may have to apologize. Right? It's all good. The point is, in the midst of this, is your heart at ease? Are you free? Are you free? That is John daily life practice. That's what practice is. So, do we need sitting meditation? Yes, you need a foundation if you don't have good foundation. Right? And we need discipline. Right? We need to learn to at least expose what is happening within us. Right? So we can see the mind's pattern, the mind's negative tendencies. Right? And then the real life situations in your life, what you're working with, that is the greatest blessing that you have to bring to life the wisdom of John, the wisdom, your own resources, your own freedom, uh, wisdom and compassion as you relate to others. So there are more that can be said about this, but I'll stop here tonight. Thank you for listening to the Dharma Talk. This podcast is run by the London Charm Meditation. You can find out more about us at londonchammeditation.org.